Silverstein hired me for the op-ed page. And to me, that was the greatest job I could have thought of, that I could have dreamed of. And for my parents, oi, they, it's like being a doctor. I mean, the New York Times, my son, none of the screw stuff. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. Design Matters is on summer break, and we'll be back with a new season in the fall. In the meantime, we're sharing some of the live interviews Debbie has recently done in front of an audience. This one, with author and art director Stephen Heller, took place in January 2018 in Atlanta as part of an AIGA conference. It was presented by the Museum of Design Atlanta in partnership with the Miami Ad School at Portfolio Center. Here's Debbie Millman, live with Stephen Heller. I read that when you were a kid, you had a precocious, a precocious streak, and you made publications and then tried to sell them. What kind of magazines were you making, and how much did they cost? Well, I found the wonders of carbon paper. Ah, mimeograph? No, so. just carbon and a typewriter. Oh, okay. And I would do, you know, s papers that uh, talked about the state of the world, like why Eisenhower was bald. Mm. <laughs> and the real think pieces. Very much so. Heady pieces. Um, I had written to Eisenhower to invite him to my house for dinner, and he responded. I wish I had the letter. It might be worth something. But he said he couldn't come, so I got really pissed off, and that was the first... Uh, takedown? Takedown. Um, I tried selling them for a couple of pennies, and uh, people took pity on me because I wore tatters. Now, did you wear the tatters because you wanted people to feel sorry for you so that they'd buy the publication? Or did you wear tatters because that's all you had? My family didn't feed me <laughs> or clothe me. So you grew up in Manhattan with this family, this, this family that didn't feed you. And you what you described as a middle-income housing project that was made for veterans returning from the war. Mm -hmm. And you were brought up in a very liberal Jewish background. Your father, which I didn't know, worked for the Air Force. And every so often, he would take you to an Air Force base. So for a time, you actually thought you might go into the Air Force. I thought I'd go to the Air Force Academy. And the, the romance of it was not to fly planes and go into battle, but to go to officers' clubs and drink Michelob. <laughs> So what made you change your mind and, and not pursue uh, going into the Air Force? The Vietnam War. Ah, okay. Well, for a short time after that, after your um, potential foray into the Air Force, you thought you might want to go into advertising. But then you decided you wanted to be a cartoonist. A cartoonist. What kinds of cartoons did you like back then? What were you reading? What were you interested in? Well, I love Jules Pfeiffer. Does everybody know who Jules Pfeiffer is? Um, Why don't you describe, just in case there's Jules Pfeiffer people. was, without some of the baggage, the Woody Allen of cartoons. In fact, Jules was first. The introspective, self-denigrating, insecure, psychologically fragile 
uh, Jew. characters. <laughs> Jew, yes. Um, he published in the Village Voice, as well as Playboy and other venues. Um, and he was, he just spoke to the generation that was before me, but he spoke to me specifically. In fact, I have on my wall a, a, a strip of his. He, he, he did comic strips for Will Eisner, who was the great comics master of the spirit. And he worked for him and did traditional comic strips. But when he did his own, he took down the walls. He took down the panels. And he had this character named Bernard. And Bernard was always trying to get girls. And he was always in a fix. He just couldn't succeed. And so uh, I ended up, years later, editing Jules's 25th anniversary book. And as one of the things he gave me uh, in exchange, is a Bernard cartoon that basically starts off by saying, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and then I can pick up girls. <laughs> and so I wanted to draw and write like him, except I was a little more spiritual uh, because I had this fixation at a certain point that I wanted to be Jesus Christ. Why? Well, he was the top Jew. <laughs> So I thought we had something in common. And he also had long hair, and I was growing long hair, very long. And I really wanted a mustache. So I drew this character that had long hair and a big mustache and no genitalia. Why? I guess I never saw mine. Um, and he would be in these very weird situations that usually had something to do with crucifixion. So I got work from underground papers doing drawings like that of these little genitalless Jesus people going into the miasma of life. And they thought it was very heavy and cool, man. So, so I want to talk a little bit about the cartoons and where you were publishing them. But before we go there, I want to ask you one or two questions about what you were doing before you started publishing your cartoons. When you were 10 years old, you worked for the Kennedy campaign in New York, uptown on 42nd Street, 10, 10 years old. So you walked into the campaign headquarters and were like, hi. Yeah, more or less. Can I help? Ten? Ten. So did you go there by yourself? Back in the day, you could actually you could. navigate through the city. When I was five own. years old, I could navigate Stuyvesant Town, which is where I grew up, without any per adult supervision. Uh, can't imagine that now. But yeah, I went up to, when I was 10 years old, there was a headquarters where the Philip Morris building is now, across from Grand Central. And I went in and I said I wanted to do something for them. And they said, can you run a projector? And I said, I'm 10 years old. Of so course. So they taught me how to run a projector. And I did that for a while. Then I stuffed envelopes. Then I, then I started doing dirty tricks. Like? I'd go to Nixon headquarters, which was a block away at the Roosevelt Hotel. And I'd get their leaflets, say I'm going to hand them out, take them, and throw them away. 
Steve, you were 10 years old. How did you even become introduced to the idea of politics at that age? I have a 10-year-old nephew. He's into Batman and Star Wars. Yeah, we didn't have Batman and Star Wars. Uh, we had Adlai Stevenson, who was the liberal's dream. And I grew up in a liberal household. I had an uncle who was more or less a communist. Uh, I mean, he wasn't a Stalinist or anything, but he was, you know, in the church they call it high, high Roman Catholic and low, and he was high liberal. Um, I'm a high femme. Right. So, uh, and he introduced me to Mort Saul, the comedian. Uh, some of you in my elderly state might remember him. He, I, I just got an education, and so I started when I was uh, younger, seven maybe, working at a democratic club near Stuyvesant Town, stuffing envelopes. So when Kennedy ran for office, he was just so young and beautiful. Everybody that I knew fell head over heels, and my parents were like that. So I thought, this is, this is the guy for me. Were your parents also working for the campaign, or was that just something you were doing on your own? Well, my father couldn't because he worked for the government, and that was against the law. Uh, Does it and, stop anybody now? No, it doesn't, does it? My, uh, my mother w was supportive, but no, she didn't go out and work. But I did meet Kennedy twice. What was that like? Well, the first time was purely accidental. Uh, I had my uncle, the almost communist one, uh, had as a, a research assistant a woman who had a doctorate in statistical analysis. And he had moved to Washington to write a book on academic freedom. And I went down there on a bus when I was eight years old. No, no, I couldn't have been. I was 10 years old. And I went alone from New York to Washington. You bought your own ticket? No, they, my parents bought the ticket, and they told the bus driver to keep an eye on me <laughs> if, if I got off in Delaware. Um, but I went down, and, and she, Loya was her name, uh, and she was part Cherokee Indian. She was terrific. Um, she had, was working as a stringer for Life as well, Life magazine. So she had press credentials to get into Congress. And she took me through the congressional doors to get to visit, be in the gallery of Congress. And we go into this elevator and somebody says, hold the door. And who comes around but this very tall, not very attractive looking man with a long nose, very burly. It was Lyndon Johnson. And right after him came John Kennedy. And I just... <laughs> I mean, I saw Jesus, I saw <laughs> Moses, I saw everything. It was great. And then the second time, uh, after I had been working at the headquarters, they gave me tickets to go to this huge rally at the Coliseum in New York. And I managed to wiggle my way all the way up to the stage. And there was a congressman who remembered me from the Envelope headquarters. Envelope stuffing days? Yeah. And he pulled me up on stage, and I was right next to Kennedy oh, as he's going fabulous. off stage. Are there any pictures of this anywhere? Not just in my mind. But if you've seen Dark Mirror, you know you can take those pictures out of your mind and put them into your computer. Good to know. 
you were in high school in the 1960s, and it was then that you started showing your cartooning work around and were hired by an underground paper called the New York Free Press. You were hired there when you were 17. How did you originally get that job? Well, I was doing cartoons for other underground newspapers um, prior to that, but I just went around and I'd leave a portfolio. And I, I tried New, the New Yorker, I tried a lot of places. No one would call back. And then one day we had a housekeeper and uh, she said, somebody from the New York Times called. And she always got messages wrong. Every time she would get a message wrong. And uh, so I, she took the number down correctly and I called and I said, come on in. And it was this uh, man named J.C. Suarez, who later became an art director at the Times, very well-known art director of books and magazines. And he said, I don't like your cartoons, but I'd like you to do mechanicals and paste-ups. And this was at the New York Free Press. Yeah, and I said, oh, sure, okay. And then I had to go find out what mechanicals You didn't and know how to do them. Were. So how did you manage in those early days when you were there ostensibly to do paste up and mechanicals? Oh, I learned. I, did you just watch other people? I watched a, the person he fired to hire me, <laughs> which still makes no sense. And then he quit to start a satiric magazine uh, and I became the art director within two weeks. Now, from I, this was a confusing tidbit that I found, so you might have to correct me because it doesn't feel like it could possibly be true, um, but I want to share it with you and, and see what you say. So from what I understand, your cartoons ran in the New York Free, Pe Free Press, but they were running as a payment because you were supposed to get $50 a week from the New York Free Press as payment for doing your paste up and mechanicals. Mm -hmm. But rather than pay you, they printed your cartoons. Is that correct? Well, not exactly. They printed my cartoons because the editor actually liked them. Okay. Uh, despite what JC said, uh, they called it a heller. Okay. And he called me the kid. Uh, there was once a great cartoon in the New Yorker of a little hobby horse tied onto one of those horse things that you people in Georgia know about. Um, and it was in front of a saloon, and these two guys are talking, and he says, I guess the kid is back in town. It was funny. He had to, had to be there. Uh, anyways, Tell him I said Heller. Well, I, that was funny. You know, the, we have to tell them what's funny. <laughs> Bob Gill actually had a great line in front. He was saying something to an audience, and they didn't laugh as much as he thought that they should. And he said, what are you, an audience or a jury? <laughs> <laughs> so you stopped drawing cartoons. Now, from what I understand, you stopped drawing cartoons because you didn't think you were very good. Now, was that true, or were you just being your sort of overly critical self? No, I wasn't very good. But Brad Holland, one of your mentors, disagreed. He thought they were good. He never told me that until after I stopped. <laughs> okay. But if it wasn't for Brad Holland, I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't have been an art director. I wouldn't have known about type. I wouldn't have ever heard of Herb Lubalin. Uh, You've said that he taught you how to think 
and that he got you off the rail. He got me, uh, he got me interested in making magazines happen and uh, got me interested in illustration and what illustration could say rather than what it did. What it did was illuminate something that was written. His belief was that illustration had its own life and that it should complement, not supplement, and uh, speak, not illustrate. And that was always very important to me to do it his way, because he became my father figure. So he was who I wanted to please. And he ended up going to the New York Times before I did. And uh, I was always in awe of his stuff. He's my oldest professional friend. Uh, we talk every so often. He only lives a few blocks away, and I haven't seen him in five years. Oh. Uh. <laughs> we know which call you need to make when you get home. Um, you started working at Interview Magazine in 1971. How did you get that job, and what were you hired to do there? I'm assuming it wasn't paste up in mechanicals. Well, it was in part. Um, I, I'm trying to remember the sequence of events. So I worked for the Free Press. Uh, at some point, I worked for a bunch of other publications. I worked for one publication under the name Stephanie Heller because they just wanted a woman. Um, I, I have something else I want to follow up and ask you about. Um, uh, I was doing, I was art director of Rock Magazine, which was a Rolling Stone wannabe. And uh, it, it was the same kind of thing, intelligent writing about rock and roll. In fact, I worked there with Patti Smith. Yes. Um, who what was, that was like? fired after two issues. It was like, here's this young girl who wanted to be a rock star and just dropped names all the time. But she wrote interesting stuff. And we became kind of friendly. And we went to a couple of concerts together. And then she got fired because the guy who ran the paper was a jerk. And um, she disappeared from my life. And then two years later, She's a rock star. Uh, and sh that's where she met Lenny Kay, who is her guitarist, her principal collaborator. He and I used to say we looked exactly alike, except he was six foot two. And I just started shrinking once I was born. Um, so I was working at Rock, and at a certain point, we, we bought typesetting machines. And we wanted to. Uh, on downtime, because it was bi-weekly, we wanted to bring in some business. So we, one of the things we brought in was interview. And it was edited by a guy named Bob Colicello, who you could read, who's done books and magazine pieces, and Glenn O'Brien, who died a few years ago. They were both very much into the, to the art scene in New York and the Maxis Kansas City crowd. And so I became their designer. Glenn became the art director. I was the designer. And I had free reign in terms of typography, but Glenn picked the photographs, which were, uh, you know, Warholish kind of things, 15 minutes of fame. Uh, what I gather is that Andy never even looked at the magazine. 
Well, you said that he was never there. You never met him. But you wrote that his spirit was pervasive, like a bewigged phantom peering through the clouds. Yes. They'd always say, well, Andy would like this. And I said, but if he never looks at the damn magazine, what's the point? Now, while you were there, you redesigned the magazine and you used your favorite two typefaces at the time to redesign the magazine, Broadway and Bussarama, which you admitted was a big mistake and the dumbest combination ever. Right, I showed that to the students earlier today. Ah. It's still a big mistake and the dumbest combination, <laughs> but now it's history. It's classic. Right, Vintage. it's an artifact. Shortly after, you were at interview, you left for what you considered greener pastures and were part of a group with Al Goldstein who started a magazine called Screw, which was the first sex tabloid in the city. So talk a little bit about how that came to be and, and how you were able to make this magazine. Well, I went back to the free press and the free press was also trying to make money uh, so it could survive. and. I also showed this to the, to the students. We would run periodically uh, nude photographs and sexy stuff on the front page to get the readership. Uh, you know, New, the New York Review of Books used to do um, uh, singles ads, and that's how they got their readership. It was always some subterfuge. And um, so, uh, what was the question? The question was, how did you get to screw? I mean, oh. that didn't come out right. <laughs> I read a book. <laughs> you couldn't have planned that any better, right? How did you get to, uh, to develop the magazine? How did you meet Al Goldstein? At, at the how Free Press, he came in to audition for a job. Really? And he met his future partner, business partner, Jim Buckley. And they started talking about starting this magazine. He had been working for these Blood and Guts magazines published by a, a real classic um, uh, sleaze named Myron Fass, and who comes up and pops up in the history books now. Uh, they were Blood and Guts. They were just about violence, and, and Goldstein would use our names in the stories. So I may have eaten two babies in one story. Interesting. And he wanted to do, he felt that, that porno had a bad name and wanted to do something that was not as clean, let's say, as Playboy, uh, but had some grit to it, but also had some political content. Can you talk a little bit about the Screw logo? Well, the Screw logo at first, which is why I left Screw, uh, was designed by somebody, I don't know who, it was disgusting. Um, and then Goldstein wanted a new one, so he hired somebody to do a psychedelic thing, and I hated psychedelia at that time. So I tried doing a logo that, if it had worked, it would have been off the page by two feet. It was just too expanded. And we got into a big fight, and he made me cry, and I quit. Um, but then when I came back, uh, he wanted to be on another level. He had gotten a lot of publicity. He had made a lot of money. Uh, he was a cultural, he, you know, it's like 
RuPaul 20, 30, 40 years ago would have been considered a freak, and now he's got the most successful TV show. It's the same with porno back then. There was porno chic, uh, and Goldstein was at the head of it because he was so provocative. Um, so he, he, uh, he got me involved, and uh, we became close friends, actually, until I had to leave and go to the Times. But you didn't talk about the logo. Oh, the logo. Oh, the Milton Glaser logo. The Milton Glaser logo. Um, I mean, who would have thought that Milton Glaser was designing porn? Well, I asked, I said, if we're going to redesign, let's go to the best. And I hated Pushpin at that time. You didn't like their style. I didn't like their style. I thought it was too decorative. But I thought they were the best. So I said, and I, actually, there was a moment. The, the chronology is a little off here, but... There was a moment where I didn't think I was going to go back to Screw. So I said, have Screw redesigned by Pushpin. And moments later, I returned to Screw. So I realized I would have to execute Pushpin's redesign. And uh, Did you know Milton at this point? Not really, no. I had heard about, of him. I had heard about Seymour Quast. Uh, they showed us a whole bunch of roughs for logos and things and there were some really nice ones but the one that was picked was this Helvetica uh, logo with an E that was erect into the W and I didn't like it I didn't like the typography they were using light line gothic I didn't like the Helvetica I didn't like that there was white space a lot of white space and just straight photographs without any kind of curlicues or decoration so I put tissue paper over all of Milton's layouts and redrew them. And they sent them to Milton. And uh, Goldstein let me get on the, the extension phone as Milton was saying, who is this asshole who's uh, <laughs> done all of this? And um, so we kept his design for a year. And then a year later, I redesigned it. And I still remind Milton of those days. And Seymour and I, Seymour is my best friend and has been for 30 years. So um, that didn't seem to get in the way. Now, before you went to the Times, you were, you were like still in your late teens, early 20s at this point. I mean, it sounds like at this point he'd maybe be in his early 30s, but no. And you were just actually thinking about going to college. So you went to NYU for about a year, but you got thrown out of NYU, and then you went to... I didn't know this. You enrolled at the School of Visual Arts, but you never went to classes. You no. never went to one class. No, I went to one oh, class. Oh, no, you went to, with Marshall Arisman. So, so you met legendary illustrator Marshall Arisman at the time, and he told you that if you came to SVA, he'd make you a senior, but you never went back, and he threw you out as well. Now you're also very good friends with Marshall. Why didn't you go back? I was working. So... Did you feel, do you ever feel that you would have liked to have had a more formal education? Oh, definitely. I and mean, I, I'm not a designer today because I didn't have a formal education. I think I would have benefited a lot from it, but it just wasn't in the cards. It wasn't in the, my blood. Um, the NYU thing was they threw me out because I was working for Screw. 
Now, you, didn't you put your philosophy for yes. professor in one of the cartoons? Uh, I made him a character. Oh, you made him a character. So, right. so maybe tell that story. That sounds like... Well, there's part of that story I don't want to tell. <laughs> but his name was Professor Glickman. So I had a superhero named Glickman. And he did nasty, nasty things. things. <laughs> that was not rehearsed, I promise. And so they found out. They found so somebody out, was reading Screw. They found out and they sent me to an NYU shrink, <laughs> which is like sending me to a military band to study rock and roll. Um, and the shrink saw me three or four times and said, I really suggest you come in to, on a regular Every day? basis. And I said, no. And he said, well, if you don't, we're going to have to throw you out. And I said, c'est la vie. And then I got reclassified for the draft as 1A, and that's when I went to SVA. Okay. You were 23 years old when you got hired by the New York Times. Right. And that's where you really learned about political graphic commentary. Then you branched out from the history of caricature and cartoon into design. Talk a little bit about your trajectory at the Times. What were you first hired to do by the time you left you were doing quite different things. So talk a little bit about that, that experience. Well, what I will say before I start that is that I am so damn lucky. Uh, there's, not, there's hardly a thing that I wanted to do that I haven't been able to do, except be a British actor. <laughs> um, you know, you could you know, try to be Ben Kingsley for a while. Uh, you probably could get away with he's it. He's English Indian. But there's a similarity, right? Don't you think? Ben Kingsley, Gandhi, right? Well, I, there's a photograph that Louise took of me coming out of the shower looking like Gandhi. <laughs> and I was proud. Um, the trajectory was I, I, I met Ruth Ansell, who was the art director of the Times Magazine section, at Brad Holland's house. I showed her my work, and it was all this <coughs> porn stuff. But I was really good at typography. And I could make a page sing. And uh, she was impressed by that. And she wanted to hire me for the magazine. So she introduced me to Lou Silverstein, who was the uh, uh, legendary art director, later assistant managing editor. And he needed somebody for the op-ed page. Uh, J.C. Suarez, who had originally hired me at Free Press, was doing the op-ed page, and he had to leave because he did something that the Times didn't want him to do. Can you share what that was? Well, it, it was just he broke rules a lot. And I even have the letter uh, somebody found in the morgue, which is where they store all the clips and old things, records, found the letter that said, if he, ever, if he comes into the building, we're going to fire him. Wow. He wouldn't even come into the building. So, so technically could, he wasn't technically really Technically he could never be fired. Uh, but I took his place. Everybody thought that he got me the job, which was maybe true, maybe not. Um, but Silverstein hired me for the op-ed page. And to me, that was the greatest job I could have thought of that I could have dreamed of. And for my parents, oi, they, it's like being a doctor. I mean, the New York Times, my son. 
None of the screw stuff. <laughs> My mother was so pissed off that when I was arrested for the New York Review of Sex, which is something else That's altogether. That's something that you did in between right. Screw um, and the New York Times. I was written up in Time Magazine, uh, and she said, why did you have to use your real name? And I said, well, technically, I'm not using my real name because I have a first name that I don't use. Uh, but she was right. I was using my name, and I just said, you're always bugging me about what's right and what's wrong. I'm leaving home. So I left home at 17 and a half and got an apartment, which I uh, cohabited with roaches. Now, the New York Review of Sex and Politics was a magazine that you actually started on your own with a bunch of other people from the New York Free Press. Right. And you did that for a number of years. No, just for about a year and a half. The, the government put us out of business. Why? Well, because it was porno. Um, we were arrested. We couldn't afford legal bills, even though we had a great constitutional lawyer. Uh, and I did something stupid. Um, I didn't know what copyright meant. So in one of our centerfolds, uh, four-page pullout on heavy paper, I took all these weird Kusama pictures and uh, put a logo from the Daily News on top of it. And it was the original logo. And I got a call from their lawyer who was very nice until he said, we're going to sue you to death. <laughs> And so they put us out of business. And so that's after that, it was when you went to the New York Times. Right. And so what did you do? How long were you at the op-ed page? And, and what were some of the proudest moments that you had there? I was at the op-ed page for about two and a half to three years. One of those years, I also did the book review section. I did all the new sections that were starting because there weren't that many art directors. So I worked on them. Uh, the proudest thing. There were quite a few things. First of all, just being at the New York Times, which to me is still the most important news gathering and news uh, telling organization in this country. Um, I did a, a page uh, towards the end of the Vietnam War that Richard Avedon did. And he came and spent the entire day making me miserable. Uh, Why? Making, because we used to do the paper in hot metal and engravings had to be made and you couldn't control the density of the picture and he wanted it controlled a certain way. So we just spent hours and hours and hours getting it done the right way, but it was nice. And there was a page once where it was a story about the Kennedy assassination and I... Uh, took the rifle, that, the famous picture of the rifle, and I airbrushed the hands out of the rifle and just took the rifle as a rifle and leaned it against a column of type, Ooh. went from the bottom of the page to the top of the page. And the associate editor of the page was out that day. So it went through. When he came back, he said he was really pissed. He said, I would never have let you do that. Why? I don't know. Now, but, it, but I said, okay, I did it. Is it true that if you didn't always have budget, you would make cartoons, that you'd, you'd actually create your own cartoons, but you used a pseudonym for yes. them? 
So you felt that they were good enough, but you didn't want to be known for them. They weren't good enough. I did them anyway, and I didn't want anybody to know I did them. What was the pseudonym? Can't tell you. Oh. <laughs> Thought I'd just squeeze that one in there. Um, then you went to the New York Times Book Review. Yes. And you did that for decades. I did that for about 30 years. And 30 years. 30 years. Well, you were there in entirety for 33 years. Right. And then plus seven years under contract. Under contract. So what was it like to work on the book review every week? What was it? What it was, was great. That? It was uh, the New York Times. It was the book review. It was dealing with material I loved, dealing with illustrators that I liked, giving people their first jobs. I felt godlike. Uh, I also felt... Jesus-like. No, by then it was just God. Okay. And, um, what did Woody Allen say? You have to model yourself after someone. Somebody, exactly. Said other things, too. Yeah, that's nice. But um, it, it was a wonderful experience. There were a bunch of different editors, each one I had to learn to get along with in different ways. And it became kind of... Uh, you know, there was one editor that I really didn't like and decided to go out and look for work and realized after visiting other magazines that nothing was better than the Times and I just bit the bullet until he left. Um, there was an editor, a woman editor, who I loved. We got along great. Uh, there was another editor who always had this line at the end of the day, uh, another day in the long march towards death. You sure that wasn't you that was saying that? No. But uh, one of my little quirks was we would always show pages on Wednesday before it went to press, and we'd do them as uh, big Xeroxes folded over. And I would draw Hitler mustaches on everybody. And it got to be such that everybody in the room started drawing Hitler mustaches. <laughs> that must have given you an enormous amount of pleasure. It did indeed. You had an opportunity while you were at the Times to begin writing books. Yeah. And so you have since written 180 books. Yeah, in varying degrees of co-authorship, co-editorship. That doesn't matter, Steve, 180. <laughs> It's 180. It's amazing. So what was your first book? My f very first byline book was Artist Christmas Cards. So you, did you have a pseudonymed book that we don't know about? No, I worked on some other books that either never went anywhere or uh, the credit was not on a cover. So talk about the first book deal. How did you get it? How did you approach a publisher or did they approach you? What was the way in which that happened and set the stage for this prolific writing career? Well, again, it was uh, a certain amount of luck and a certain amount of... No, of Steve, you don't have the life that you have and use luck as some sort of an excuse for what you've made. Well, I, I did persevere. Um, I had this idea for a book, which was to take artists' Christmas cards and put them together. And I did a lot of research. I even had Albert Einstein's Christmas card. Really? How did you find that? Uh, from a friend of mine named Fritz Eichenberg, who, was, who knew him. He wasn't, I, I, Einstein was not a very good artist. Um, 
Well, he couldn't he, be good at everything, right? He, Let's be he, grateful he for that. Uh, but <clears throat> so I had this idea. But before that, I was working on a book called Gas, Food, and Lodging with John Bader, who is a painter. Some people may know his work. He paints diners, among other roadside things. And I put a dummy of a book together for him. And when we sold it, they said they didn't want me to design it. They wanted their in-house person to. And I said, that's fine, because even though I wanted to do it very much, it was more important for him to have the book out. So his agent really appreciated that, because I could have been prob a problem. Uh, and she said she would be my agent. So she started taking this Artist Christmas Cards book around, and it took two years. We kept getting no's, 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 then one yes from the Museum of Modern Art, went to a meeting, they said yes, yes, yes. I said, I'm taking you out to dinner on Thursday night, this might have been on a Monday, and when I went to pay for the meal, she said, let's go Dutch. And I knew what that meant. Uh. So then it was another few months, and a, a, a publisher, an independent publisher called A&W, not the root beer, um, published it, uh, and then it went to Simon & Schuster, and they published the paperback edition. And then I did four or five more books for A&W before they went under. And what is your way of working now when you have, I mean, we saw the, this sort of funny thing about how you come up with an idea, and by the time Louise wakes up, you have a contract. It's not that funny. Is that real? That's not, I mean, how does it work? If I have an idea, I'll wake up, I'll go to the computer, I'll write somebody with the idea, and then bug them until they tell me yes. Wow. And that's how all your books come to be? Well, I produce twice, 10 times as many ideas than there are books. And quite to be honest with you, there are six or seven books that I am under contract for that I've never done and will never do. And so they're just hanging out there in perpetuity? They're in space, they're in somebody's file. They didn't but ask. you also get opportunities to write books where people come to you and say, Steve, would you like to write this book? Not very often. Well, that's how I got my first book deal. Steve was asked to write a book called How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer, which I still maintain is the worst book title of any book ever, ever, ever written. Um, but it was my first opportunity, and Steve, you passed on it and recommended to um, Tad Crawford, the publisher of Allworth Press, that he call me, because then I subsequently got an e a, a voicemail that Steve had passed on this idea, but had recommended that I be the person that they reach out to to see. And right. that was my first book deal. There are stories like this, probably a million fold, of people that Steve has influenced, of people that Steve has helped, of people that Steve has mentored, and therefore, I don't take any of this luck thing with any sense of seriousness because the way in which you've lived your life and the way in, and the generosity in which you've shared your opportunities is something that I've never witnessed before. And so I wanna thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Right? Let's talk about SVA, because you had this 
30, this magnificent, really 40-year career at the New York Times, 33 on staff and seven as a contractor. And you have been writing books for decades now, but you've also created a graduate program at the School of Visual Arts, first called Designer as Author, an MFA program, now Designer as Entrepreneur. You not only co-founded that program with Lita Tellerico, but you also helped co-found an interaction program with Liz Danzico, the designing, writing, and research program with Alice Twemlow. You helped me create my program in branding. So what made you decide that this was an area that you wanted to pursue, this higher education, graduate education, and not only your own program, but then help really push SVA into the future with numerous graduate programs? Well, what I was also doing, just to add this because it's so morbidly fun, I wrote obituaries for the New York Times. <laughs> All the dead designers that I would get into the paper, 60 obituaries. Uh, I liked it really because they couldn't complain that I got the facts wrong. Um, I started writing for the paper, which was a bit, uh, even more exciting than being an art director for the paper. Uh, so I did that. Um, when it was time for me to leave the Times, uh, I needed a landing spot. And I had, two years after I was thrown out of SVA, I got a job teaching at SVA, doing the school newspaper. I still have layouts from that. It never amounted to anything because that's when I got the job at the Times. But Marshall Arisman, who threw me out of the school, asked me to teach in his new graduate program, the, design, the illustrator is journalist. And I said I would do a history of illustration for him. And we did, and I was with him for about 14 years. And while I was there, I had an idea with Richard Wilde, who was the BFA chair, to do a series of conferences called Modernism and Eclecticism, a History of American Graphic Design. So we would do those. And then the then chairman, founder of the school, asked me to do an education conference. And I did that. Um, All luck. All luck. And when, when Silas asked me to do this, Silas Rhodes, um, I put together this program. It was really quite a, a good one. Uh, in fact, one of the, the conferences we had was at the World Trade Center the week before the first bombing. And we were in the room that was right above where the bomb went off. It's very spooky. Yes. Um, but at one point he called me and he said, I'd asked Paula Scher to come up with a graduate program. And she came up with something, but uh, we can't do it. And now I want you to come up with one. So do you know what hers was that they couldn't do? Yeah, it was to use the city as uh, a canvas. And it was a good program. Uh, but he wanted something that was gr graphic design. And this, he felt, would be too, uh, the focus would be off. And it was their first graphic design uh, MFA. So I 
use the school as idea as a great professional school or what some people would call a trade school to come up with the idea that the next thing designers should do is entrepreneurship. Except you couldn't get the word entrepreneurship through the accrediting uh, oh, agencies. Interesting. So, which were, you know, the, the state government. So we called it authorship because it was more scholarly. And we always knew it, would, it was about entrepreneurship. And, and I, now you've formally changed the name. Well, we, it's, no, it was never a formal name. Okay. It's called MFA Design, formally. And we just added the okay. subtitles. Uh, so I, I felt this, could, this is easy. All I have to do is run it like a design conference. You know, I pick classes instead of speakers, but I have the teachers who are basically the speakers doing it for an extended period of time. And I never learned much about academia, not having been allowed to stay in school. Um, but you do have two honorary doctorates I now. have two honorary doctorates, yes. So I can be called Doc Heller. But... Uh, the, I, I, uh, Lita Tellerico and I had been uh, working together prior to this on some of my books. She was doing research. I ran into her at a basketball game where our kids were playing, and I said, I'm starting a program. I know she was working for SUNY Purchase, which was the state school, and I asked her if she wanted to interview for the job of, of uh, administrator, because uh, I was the chair. And she did it for two years as an administrator and then took on the chairship. And then by the time I was ready to leave the Times, we agreed that I'd be a co-chair. And then at that point, we started the other programs. So the first program I actually started independent of MFA design was social documentary film. And that's because two days before I had lunch with Mara Chemayev, Ivan Chemayev's daughter, and Ivan told me she was a filmmaker, and I said, oh, good, maybe she can run a program. So uh, that happened. We met in a similar fashion at lunch. And so anybody who I had lunch with, I'd ask to start a program. I still have the email that Steve sent me on July 7th, 2007, that said, want to have lunch? So it, can't, it couldn't be done this way anymore because our, our president at SVA is not a typical uh, academic uh, president. He, he has great enthusiasms and he trusts his uh, people to do things that they think are right and can be successful or not, as the case may be, because graduate programs are more prestige than they are money makers. When you were asked why the first wave of students entered the program from the late 90s through the mid-2000s, your answer was to get back to the hand. What kinds of things have your students done over the years? Well, the most famous thing that came out of our program was Deborah Adler's uh, prescription drug packaging for Target stores. And it put her on a trajectory to do medical design um, she just had another big deal with CVS, CVS I believe, right? Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's funny. We, we're in, going into our 20th year. We have a book that lists everybody's, we call them ventures because it's entrepreneurial. We don't call them thesis. And I just don't remember any of them. You know, it's like I, I, we have a lot of students who have made names for themselves and made successful businesses like Bobby Martin and Jennifer, Jennifer Kynan, who have OCD. Uh, Sam Eckersley, who is here, and Stuart Rogers, who did Red. Um, there are a lot of people who met in our midst uh, and have gone on to great things. Some of them did their ventures. Some of them didn't do their ventures, but it became the foundation for, for other work they were doing. You've said that teaching is where the most insignificant thing can be viewed as significant. I said that. You did? I was going to ask if you could elaborate, but given that you don't remember saying it, you might want to just sort of leave it there as this beautiful poetic it's line. It's very poetic. I think you're right. Let's leave it. So this is my last question. You've said that you are experiencing a blossoming of tolerance and appreciate design ideas that used to annoy you. And so I was wondering if you could share what those are. <laughs> well, I'll go back uh, a, a dozen or so years. I wrote something called Cult of the Ugly. Yes. Which became... One of your most famous essays. Infamous essays. Uh, I read it over again, and I'm kind of embarrassed by it. But um, it, it became standard reading in a lot of courses, and it garnered a lot of animosity from particularly young designers who were working in the new wave or in the digital realm, many of whom I've since become friends with. But uh, my idea about design was always that it had to serve uh, a, a social purpose, that the reason I didn't go into advertising was I didn't want to sell something to somebody that they, something that they didn't want. Uh, the reason I never went into branding was because I didn't want to create a story that was a fictional story about something that had no history. Um, I was happy to work at a newspaper because I never got f faced with the dilemma of doing something for somebody that I didn't want to do. In fact, I got a call uh, a couple of weeks ago asking if somebody could do a documentary on me that would run on Fox Business News. And I said, absolutely not. Yes. But wait, not that I didn't do it. He then, he then told me, uh, we do the documentary, you pay for the shoot. And I said, this is a fucking scam, isn't it? That's a vanity documentary. Right. Oh, my. So there are companies that do that stuff. But I was glad I said right up front, no Fox. So now you can clap. <laughs> um, what was tolerance. The, tolerance. Yeah, I mean, as you grow older, things change. Uh, things that I'd get angry at in the past are different. You know, the book that I have out, The Moderns, I told the students this morning, this was work, the kind of work I really didn't like because I felt it had no uh, 
there there, that it was more about systems, it was more about playing with form than it was about dealing with content, and then I learned differently. Uh, I learned from just about everybody I talked to that m many of my assumptions and many of my presumptions are wrong. And I've been doing a lot more reading than I ever have lately. And I'm just absorbing more things that are of interest to me. Unfortunately, a lot of what I've been reading lately has to do with Nazis. Uh, Anybody here surprised? Uh, but some of my assumptions were wrong. Like what? Well, that people can get caught, uh, th this may sound re really weird, but people can get caught up in circumstances that are terrible circumstances. But nobody is purely guilty and purely innocent. It's, it's a longer conversation. Okay, absolutely. But, That'll be the topic of our next Design Matters episode. Okay. But, but tolerance is something that we don't have enough of. Uh, and I feel that looking at design as an ideology as opposed to a more broad-based practice is something that I've had to deal with. And so the ideology part of my design thinking uh, is porous without giving up too much. Thank you. Thank you. Stephen Heller. <laughs> Doc Heller. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.